Doing well. Uh, I was going to make a comment about the snow and how much I completely disagree with Thad. Um, but I was so satisfied with his comment about ping pong that I'm just going to leave it. So, but, all seriousness, um, it is a privilege to be here. I am so honored and blessed to be a part of this and just to be able to dive into the Word of God with you. So, if you have your Bible, please turn your Bible to Ezra chapter 7. Um, Ezra chapter 7, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had the honor of going to a conference, and the whole theme was the sufficiency of Scripture. And it was when it was talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, it's talking about how Scripture is enough for all aspects of godliness in life through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it was a great reminder of how much God's Word truly is enough for us. So, in light of that theme and in light of our text this morning, I want to ask you this question. Is your heart set on the sufficient word of God this morning? Is your heart set on the sufficient word of God this morning? So, if you guys will please stand with me just for a moment. We're going to read verse 10 together. Here's what verse 10 reads in Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we are just so honored to be here this morning. We are so honored that we have your spoken word written to us that we can dive in and have you speak to us about every aspect of godliness and life. And so, God, we just pray for our time together as we're going to be diving into this beautiful text um, and everything related to it, Lord. I pray you open up our hearts to the reality of the gospel through this, that you open up our hearts to the weight of how powerful and how necessary the word of God is. And I just pray, Father, that you just move in us. We need you, just like we were singing in our last song. God, we need you this morning, so come and visit us. So, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Thank you. Um, so in order for us to really grasp what's going on in this text, we have to get a good feel for what the book is all about. Okay, so if we were to look at both Ezra and Nehemiah, we would see that the Lord was bringing his people out of captivity from Babylon to Jerusalem on three separate trips. The first trip was Ezra 1 through 6, which was led by Zerubbabel. The second trip was led by Ezra, which you see in chapters 7 through 10. And the second trip we see, or the third trip we see is from Nehemiah, which is what the whole book of Nehemiah is all about. Now, with that being said, we have to ask ourselves this question. Why were they in captivity in the first place? Why were they in captivity in the first place? So please turn your Bibles over to 2 Kings 17, starting in verse 6. And we're going to see why these people were in captivity. This will help us really get into our verses this morning. So that's 2 Kings 17, starting in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, and on the harbor of the river of Gazan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt 
from under the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars of Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on the high places as the nations did when the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by the servants and the prophets. Let's pause there. So we see clearly that they sinned against God. They turned their back against God. In fact, they were worshiping the very false idols that God told them explicitly not to. The people who oppressed them for 400 years in Egypt, they were worshiping false gods. And then God brought them out of there and brought them to a new area where there was all these, all, all these other false prophets or false gods that were around. And they said, hey, don't, don't worship those either. Worship me. And we see that they did the complete opposite. But here's what I love about God. I love his mercy here. Because in verse 13, you see that he warned Israel. Instead of basically taking them out in that moment for turning their back on him, he had mercy, and he warned them. He brought every prophet, every seer, and he told them, turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your wicked ways and turn to me in my word. And so in light of that, let's, let's see how the people responded to this warning, starting at verse 14 of that same section. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that, they, that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heavens and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah. So here we see their response. They wouldn't listen. They were stubborn. It clearly says that they despised his word. And then a little farther down it says, he abandoned his word. And the thing is, when you despise God's word, when you abandon God's word, you're not just abandoning his word. You're despising God. You're abandoning God. And what you see is every single time you take yourself away from God's word, it will always, in some way, shape, or form, lead to destruction. It leads to the path of death. Now, that might not happen necessarily in this life for those who despise the Lord, 
but it's indefinitely coming in the end judgment. And so this is what happens when we do this. And it, it, and it got so bad, guys, that they sacrificed their kids. They sacrificed their kids to these false idols. It's a perfect example of how when you reject the word of the Lord, it leads to death, that they were willing to light their kids on fire for sacrifice. That's a problem. So because they rejected the Lord by rejecting his word, the Lord was going to discipline his children, allowing them to be taken captive. Yet even though they would be taken captive because of their rejection of God's word, God had a plan. Right? So even in the midst of this, even while they were burning their kids alive to false idols, even as they were serving Baal, in fact, Scripture talks about it, when you commit adultery against God, it's like committing adultery against him. That's the weight of that sin. And yet, even though God's going to lead them, allow them to be led into captivity as a discipline to them, he has a plan. Let's turn to Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. Um, one of the most uh, quoted verses in the Old Testament is in this section. And I think it's great. It's always on coffee cups and all that stuff. Um, but I feel like a lot of people don't realize what the context is that's going on with this verse. So Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. Jeremiah was one of the prophets that God sent to speak to his people to warn them to come back to the Lord. So again, Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. It reads this, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your hearts. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. Doesn't this make you look at this text a little bit differently now? This text was given to them in the midst of their rebellion. He was saying that when 70 years of your captivity is up, I'm going to bring you back to the place that I promise you. Why? Because he knows the plan he has for his children. It is the plans for welfare, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then, then when you come to the end of yourself, you will recognize your need for me. Then you will call upon me. Then you will pray to me. Then you will seek me then I will be found by you, declares the Lord. He will restore you. You will find him. Because that's how it always works. Guys, in order for us to see God, when we, when we see him for who he really is, it should cause us to come to the end of ourselves. If it doesn't, he's going to remind you of what happens when you don't want him. And he doesn't do it because he hates you. He does it because he loves you. I mean, no parent in their right mind is going to discipline their children just for discipline's sake. Nobody wants to discipline their kids, but they do if they love them. And that's what we see happening here. 
So the Lord allows them to be taken away 70 years, but he doesn't leave them there. In fact, if you were to turn a few chapters over, which you're not going to for the sake of time, um, you would see that he makes a new covenant with them. He tells them, I'm going I'm to create in you a new heart. You also see it in Ezekiel 36. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my law in you. I'm going to write it on your heart, and I'm going to forgive you. And of course, this gives us the picture of what is to come in the future as well, which is the ultimate covenant, which is in Christ. It points us to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that saves us from our sin. That's what it's ultimately striving to lead us to. So when we go back to our text in Ezra 7, you guys can turn there now. Ezra 7. 70 years later is where this book picks up, where God fulfills his promise to bring them out of the captivity back to Jerusalem. So if we look at verse 10 again, this section is focused on the second return led by Ezra. And here we're going to see the heart behind the man who God uses to lead them back to himself. So Ezra 7.10 reads this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. All right, so who is this guy Ezra? Who is he? From what we see from this text around, we see that he is the lineage of Aaron, Moses' brother, he's a Levite. We see that he held some kind of high position in the Persian court, and we see that because when you look at the text around it, he has great communication with the king, and unless you have a high position in that place, um, you're not going to talk to the king. Okay, so he, he seemed to have a high position there. And we also see from the verses around it that he was a priest and a scribe, or simply put, he was one who studies, interprets, copies, and teaches the scriptures, which we're going to see an example of that a little later in Nehemiah. And many commentators seem to believe that the synagogue he established was where the canon of the Old Testament was first formally recognized. Okay, so this guy held a pretty high position. So in light of this position that the Lord called him to, we see where Ezra chose to set his heart. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it to all of Israel. So the first words that you see after Ezra in our verse is, had set his heart. So the words had set can simply be translated to be firm, to be stable, or to be established. In other words, you could say that he had firmly established his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. And then the next word you see is the word heart, which can simply be translated inner man, mind, will, heart, soul, understanding. Or you could say he firmly established his whole being to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. And so scripture has a lot to say about our hearts. And one of the things that it talks about is whatever your heart is firmly established on is going to be evident in your life. It's going to affect the way that you live your life. Proverbs 27, 19 says this, As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of a man reflects the man. So it's like being at camp, right? And you have the pond there, and there's nobody in the pond, and you can look in the pond, and you can see the reflection of your face in it. In the same way, the heart reflects the character of a person. You can see it even a little farther in Proverbs 4.23. Uh, this is from the NIV translation. It says this, Above all else, guard your heart. Why? For everything you do flows from it. 
So whether your heart has been purified by Christ and his word, or you're still stuck in the curse of sin, the outflow of that is going to be in your actions, in your conduct. So Ezra knows every part of his actions outflows from whatever is going on in the depth of his heart. So by his grace, rather than setting his heart on the world around him or the lust of the flesh like the Israelites chose to, and we see where that led them, he chooses to set his heart on the law of the Lord or the word of God. Which with the influence and position Ezra had in helping return God's people back to himself, he had to be a man who was already firmly establishing his heart to study and obey and teach God's law. So what is so great about the word of God that he would set his heart on it? In other words, what is so great about this book that he would set his heart on it? Now, obviously, they had just the law. They had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. But regardless, it was still sufficient enough for them. So what's so great about it? I'm going to give you a few things that you can think about. First, the word of God is the spoken word to us and trains us in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. The word of God is living and active in our lives, Hebrews 4, 12. The word of God is truth and sanctifies us, John 17, 17. The word of God explains our origins, Genesis 1 through 11. It explains how were we created. It explains where sin came from. It explains God's rescue plan. And it explains why we have different ethnicities and languages in our world. The word of God explains rightly who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The word of God is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, according to John 1, 1 through 4. The word of God shows us how to be saved through Jesus, John 3, 16. The word of God shows us what the church is and how the church is to function, basically every epistle in the New Testament. The word of God shows us the full picture of our victory in Jesus, the book of Revelation. And if you were to look at Psalm 119, which I figured 117 verse, or 176 verses was something we weren't looking to do this morning, um, it gives a great description of the scriptures. So all this is to explain why Ezra firmly established his whole being on the word of God and in turn why we should do the same thing. So let me ask you again. Is your heart set on the sufficient word of God this morning? Let's find out. Here are three principles of setting your heart on the sufficient word of God from our text this morning. Principle one, set your heart to study God's word. Set your heart to study God's word from Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. This word study simply means to seek with care. To seek with care. Okay, you don't have to turn there, um, but you can see this illustrated by the Bereans in Acts 17, 10 through 12. And what we see going on in the context here is Paul and Silas just went preaching to Thessalonica and were forced to leave after shortly. Okay, And from there they were sent to Berea. And when they went there, they did the same thing that they do every time, which we see from our text. This is, seven, this is chapter 17, 10 through 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, 
They received the word of God with all eagerness, examining the scripture daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. Now, I love this, okay? I love this because what we don't realize is Paul had a reputation. He went from being one who slaughtered Christians in the name of God to going on the other side of the spectrum and becoming a great preacher of the gospel, right? So when he came, he had this reputation. And he came into the synagogue and he showed from the Old Testament how all of it pointed to Christ. And yet, these Bereans didn't just take his word for it. It says they examined the scripture daily to see if these things were so. So they took everything that Paul said and they brought it to the scriptures. And because of that, it says, many of them therefore believed. You guys, this is the type of examining a scripture we should have. Don't just take my word for it. Examine what I say to you this morning. Examine what anybody says to you. Examine the scriptures. Because what the scriptures does is it points us to the author of our salvation, which is Christ. And this is why God's word is sufficient for us. Because it shows us who the real Christ is. So you can see some other verses that talk about, or give examples of studying the word of God. 2 Timothy says in 2.15, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Next is Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And then this one's from Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. So guys, our, our time in the word, it, it's not meant to be a quick glance at the verse of the day on version. It's not meant to be something you check off on your checklist of your reading plan. Okay, not that there's anything wrong with those things. Okay, but if we're, if we're not truly getting in the word, examining it, doing the work to understand it, how are we ever going to know our Savior well? How are we ever going to really know our God if we're not even getting in the book that he calls us to seek him in? I love how John Piper challenges us. I don't know if I love it because it's convicting, but it's good. He says this, Satan devotes 168 hours a week trying to deceive you. Do you think you can maintain a renewed mind with a 10-minute glance at God's book once a day. I'm going to read that again. 
Satan devotes 168 hours a week trying to deceive you. Do you think you can maintain a renewed mind with a 10-minute glance at God's book once a day? Now, this is a hard pill to swallow because there are honest struggles it comes to when getting in the Word of God. Right? For one, you do have to work hard to study it. You do have to work hard to understand it. That's why they have colleges and seminaries and churches because they're trying to teach people how to study the word so they can apply it to their lives. It's a struggle, right? You have, you have mothers who have little children hanging all over them 24 hours a day. If you want a good illustration of that, just look at the story of this life. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that before, but it's a great uh, YouTube video. You guys should check it out. You have fathers. You have fathers who work all day long and then come home to try to take care of their family and they go to bed exhausted. It is a struggle to get in the word of God. You have students. You have students who spend all day in school, and many of them work afterwards, and then are asked to do homework on top of that. Getting in the word is a struggle. But if we lose sight of knowing Christ by not seeking him in his word, then we are literally missing out on what matters most in this life. Because the gospel is what matters most when you die, which means it matters most as you live. And the full picture of the gospel is revealed in the sufficient word of God. So, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Have you set your heart to study God's sufficient word today? Have you been doing a 10-minute glance at God's word? Or have you been truly studying, meditating, and examining God's word to know him? If you haven't been, what has your, what has your heart been set on more than him? In other words... What has your affection been stirred up more than the person of Christ that is revealed to us in his word? Because whatever that is, guys, it is not worth compared to the reality of what Christ has done and who Christ is. So what we've seen for our first principle is to set our heart to study God's word. And this is deeply connected with our second principle that we see from this text which is this, set your heart to obey God's word. Set your heart to obey God's word. Again, going back to our verse. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, which is pretty clear. He set his heart to study the law and to obey it. And this is huge because rightly obeying God's word is a reflection that you have truly studied God's word. Before you can rightly obey God, you must study God's word carefully because if you claim to know him, if you claim to know him, but you don't rightly obey him, then you don't ultimately know him. Turn to 1 John 2, 3 through 6. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Um, one of the major themes in this book is to show what an authentic Christian looks like. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. 
It's again 1 John 2, 3 through 6. It reads this. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which we or in which he walked. So it's clear. Unless you rightly obey Christ, you don't rightly know him. You can't rightly obey Christ unless you rightly study the word of God, which is about Christ. Now, here's not what I'm saying. Okay, I want to make this clear. Um, we're not talking about perfect obedience here. That's impossible. Okay? Um, because if we're talking about perfect obedience here, you guys are wasting your time being here and you might as well go home. But that's, that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is a habitual lifestyle that desires and strives to rightly obey Christ by his grace. This habitual lifestyle, the Bible calls sanctification. It's the process of becoming like Christ. That's why I like this definition of disciple. Um, it's from the Trellis and the Vine book. If you have not read it, read it multiple times. It's really good. Um, but here's how they define a disciple. A disciple is a forgiven sinner learning Christ through repentance and faith. I'll read it again. A disciple is a forgiven sinner learning Christ through repentance and faith. Now, this is not saying you can sin however you want and then repent and confess your sins and move along. But this is talking about striving to obey Christ through his grace because of his work on the cross. If you know him, you will not only long to obey him, but you will obey him by his grace. So Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to obey it. Do your actions reflect a heart that knows God because you have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is your claim to know him disproved by your habitual pursuit of what he calls sin? Do you deeply long and strive to obey God's word and hate when you don't? When God's word goes against your grain of thinking, do you desire and strive to submit to him anyways, or do you go your own way and make yourself and God look like a liar? So what we've seen so far is in principle one, to set your heart to study God's word. And the second principle we see from our text is to set your heart to obey God's word. And that leads us to our last principle. Set your heart to teach God's word. So again, back to our text. Ezra 7.10. For Ezra, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So once Ezra had examined the, the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord, God's word, however you want to call it, and desired and strived to obey it by his grace, his role in this context was to teach it to Israel. 
So you guys can turn over to Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8, and we can see how this plays out. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8, it's the next book over after Ezra. It reads this. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded us. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of all the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform that they had made for the, for the purpose. And beside him stood all of these people that I'm going to skip down to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, again, one of these, bunch of these names I can't pronounce, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. So here we see Ezra's responsibility as a priest and a scribe. He would stand before the people of God and teach them the word. And then he would have all these people around him to help them understand it so they can apply it to their lives. And what you see from chapter 9 to chapter 12 is you see a revival happen. You see a renewal happen. You see these people rededicated to the Lord. It transformed them as a community. Because that's what the word of God does. It leads us to life. It leads us to life. Unfortunately, what you see in chapter 13 is that eventually they would uh, take their eyes off the word of God yet again. But the fact remains, when their heart was set on the word, it did bring renewal and revival. And I, I've, been very, I've been very fortunate, because um, I've, been, I've been doing youth ministry for a couple of years now at our church, um, and in the last three months, we've seen three different teenagers come to know Christ. We're not a big youth group, so that's a, that's a pretty incredible thing. Um, and what it came down to is coming back to the word of God consistently. It didn't matter what the question was. It didn't matter what they were going through. It always came back to, this is what the scripture says. You're coming to us, so you know what we're going to talk about. You know what we're going to bring you. Here's what it says. I can't control what you do with it. And by God's grace, we saw three in the last three months get saved, one of them this past week, which is pretty awesome. So we were able to teach them with the word of God. But some of you may be sitting here thinking to yourself, well, I never plan on preaching in front of people or teaching in front of people because I am not getting on that stage ever in a million years. Don't even ask me. So does that mean, uh, you know, I'm kind of excused from this? No. So here are a few questions to think through, okay, as to why nobody in this room has an excuse not to be teaching the word of God. Are you a parent? As we saw from the dedication, 
They're dedicated to teaching their children the word of God. And we see that from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 and Ephesians 6, 4, which was quoted. So that refutes that excuse. Um, Are you a believer who is more mature in your relationship with Christ than someone you know? Well, Titus 2, 1 through 8 refutes that excuse as well because it calls us all to be teaching somebody less mature than us in Christ. And here's the last one. Did you just become a believer recently and the only thing you understand from Scripture right now is the gospel? Well, believe it or not, Mark 16, 15 excuses that, or gets rid of that excuse because if you know the gospel, you have billions of people in the world who don't. So you have enough to share with somebody. And that's been one of the most beautiful things we've got to experience in our youth ministry is a lot of these teens... Um, all they knew was the gospel. That, that's all they knew. And they shared with their families. They shared with their friends. They shared with everybody they could think of. And this is all that they knew. And it's because of that that these three teens got saved. So there really isn't any excuse for any of us. Now, outside of a new believer who all they know is how to share the gospel... Um, If you are examining scripture and are rightly obeying it, then you should set your heart on teaching it to someone else, regardless of whether that's in a pulpit or not. We all have a responsibility in this. I mean, we can also point to the Great Commission where we're all called to make disciples. What I have found the most, okay, what I have found the most is when I'm brought questions that I don't know how to answer, okay, it actually drives me deeper into the scriptures. Because if I don't know how to answer something, like, I don't want to just run away from God and just assume he doesn't have an answer. I want to run to scripture because scripture is sufficient. In fact, I would say, even even in the text this morning, um, before I decided to preach on this, I didn't really know much about Ezra. I didn't. But because I knew I was going to be preaching from this text, it made me dive in and ask the questions. What's this book all about? Who is is Ezra? What's going on? And that's what questions should always cause us to do. Not run away from Christ, but run to him. So Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to obey it and to teach it. So if you are examining scripture diligently and have been obeying it faithfully, You should be striving to teach someone else the same thing. And again, new believer, you still have the gospel that you can share. If you haven't, why haven't you been? Because scripture doesn't give us excuses. Scripture calls us all to do this. And it's not just to check off some checklist or anything like that. It's not to earn favor with God. It's because we want to know him and make him known. So this morning I asked the question, is your heart set on the sufficient word of God this morning? And in light of that question, I presented three principles of setting your heart on God's word from our text. Principle one, set your heart to study God's word. Principle two, set your heart to obey God's word. And principle three, to teach God's word. And again, we strive to set our heart on God's word, not to earn favor with God and not as some religious act to be saved, but to know him and make him known 
to the person and work of Jesus Christ who is revealed to us in Scripture. So to set your heart on God's word is ultimately to intimately know the person who saved you. This is our greatest motivation for getting the word. So again, is your heart set on the sufficient word of God today? If not, talk to somebody here. That is what the body of Christ is for. And I can personally tell you from my own experience through camp and through various other avenues, people can teach you how to do this because that's a lot where I learned how to do it myself. And more than anything else I want for you this morning, more than anything else, I want you to know Christ. I want you to know him. I want you to know your creator who is the one who truly saved you through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And you can only truly know him through God's sufficient word. So have you, have you set your heart on God's sufficient word this morning? If you haven't, change that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to sit underneath your word, God. Your word challenges us in every way. Your word is enough in every aspect of godliness through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, you are enough through every circumstance. Your word is trustworthy. Your word is reliable. Your word is true in every way. And God, through your precious, precious word, we get to know our precious, precious Savior. And so we thank you for your grace and your mercy this morning as we dove into your word. And I pray, if we haven't set our heart on your word yet today, let it start now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.